This is an EM Pulse Heartbeat with your host, Sarah Medeiros. Welcome back to EM Pulse. It's no secret that Black, Indigenous, and people of color are underrepresented in medicine and academics. This is largely due to structural or institutionalized racism, which is a massive topic for another time. But as a white person with college-educated parents, I benefited from this system, and I am still learning just how much my privilege afforded me. Honestly, this can be unnerving and even embarrassing at times, as I delve into and start to really appreciate the struggle my non-white friends and colleagues have faced and continue to face. I haven't done enough to fight racism. I want to do more. This month's Heartbeat is geared specifically to people like me who want to be better allies in this fight. It is absolutely crucial to listen to voices of people of color and follow their lead. But as we'll discuss, it is not our non-white colleagues' job to educate us. So with that in mind, our guest today is Dr. Colleen Sweeney. Dr. Sweeney is a professor of biochemistry and molecular medicine at the UC Davis School of Medicine, and she recently spoke, along with family medicine physician Dr. Ian Kim, on taking allyship to the next level. Tell me about the talk you recently gave with Dr. Ian Kim. It's called From Advocate to Ally, and we were invited by the Office of health equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so it, it was a community forum. So a very um, broad audience, community members, students, faculty, and just talking about our own individual experiences, working on moving from being an ally to an advocate. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved in this and what is your motivation for doing this? Honestly, what got me involved in this is really my students So I've been here for 20 years, and I've been a medical educator for probably 17 or 18 years. And as a first-generation college graduate, I've always been very student-centered. I've always wanted to create a very welcoming environment for my students. And so that led me to being really curious about things that mattered to students beyond just the material that I was delivering to them. So I... um, you know, would just pay attention to things that they would discuss and then started attending the events that they would hold. And that really drew me in. That was really kind of my path into thinking beyond um, beyond the basic science of a person, which is what I was, you know, it's what I was teaching. I was teaching them biochemistry, but our student body is really interested in the entire person. And so they really drew me in. And Now I'm on this path. I've been really inspired by my students. Well, let's talk a little bit about what you spoke about in this talk. And you started out with some history. So uh, disclaimer, I'm I'm far from an expert on any of this. I'm I'm definitely a work in progress. And when we um, had our community forum the other day, Ian and I gave examples of history that we had learned as, you know, children or teenagers and things that we look back on now and and realize just how one-sided that history was. So my, the example that I gave was growing up, not right next to you, but within driving distance of Plymouth Rock. You know, it's a source of pride. This is where the pilgrims landed and and we would go visit it. But as an adult, looking back and realizing, I, I didn't get both sides of that story. And 
really now as an adult understanding that I didn't get more than one side of any story and trying to undo that to the degree that I'm able on my own by doing as much reading as I possibly can, unlearning what we have been taught because that that sets the foundation. So, so what you're taught as a child, what you're taught as a teenager, how you're socialized, that sets the foundation that allows racism to, to thrive. And I, I think Ian, Dr. Kim used the term narratives. These are narratives that we move through our, our lives with and we don't question them. And so then moving on to sort of systemic racism. Again, I'm, I'm not an expert. I've, I've made a commitment to do as much reading as I can. And um, one of my favorite authors is Dr. Ibram Kendi, who wrote the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And he's a survivor of stage four colon cancer. And he uses this as sort of an, an analogy uh, when, when he was talking about his disease, overcoming metastatic colon cancer, he uses the analogy that really racism is metastatic in our country. It is so widely spread. And as a cancer biologist, when we think about metastases, we think about how they can lie dormant and then they emerge and, you know, they, they are stealth actors. And I think racism in a lot of ways is like that uh, as well. It's so widely spread that, you know, me as a white person, I'm not even really cognizant of the system that I'm living in. That's a really powerful metaphor. And, you know, I like the way that you said that you're a work in progress. And, and I think that that's part of what this is about. I think it's kind of shocking to us as we start to realize that those narratives that we heard as children that we sort of took as gospel, that a lot of that is very flawed and one-sided. So you sort of talk about this stepwide process and awareness is kind of earlier. And then from awareness, you can move into being an ally. Tell me a little bit about what it means to be an ally. And then what does it mean to be an advocate and how do they differ? So for me, I think that Awareness is really the, the key element of, of being an ally. So another statement that resonates with me was made by the, the poet James Baldwin. And he said, white people are trapped in a history that they don't understand. So first, we've got to do the work to really understand the whole story of our history, good and bad. And from that awareness, then comes action. So being an ally is really committing to expanding your, your world, doing the reading, staying up to date on things just as we would our own disciplines. Academia demands that we stay up to date in our respective disciplines. And so you and I are, you know, online checking out what papers have come out. Uh, do we Do we do that when it comes to this area. Can we do that? And can we commit to that? So as an ally, I made that commitment to not miss an opportunity to learn. If there was a, a conference that students were, were holding, like the health equity conferences that Dr. Kim initially organized, I wouldn't miss that opportunity to learn. And then, of course, you, you probably know Dr. Jan Marie Garcia, who is a wonderful peer educator for our faculty. And every time she opened her mouth, I was there, I was there listening. So that was sort of what I think was my ally phase where I was absorbing as much knowledge as I could. And I 
commit to continue to do that. If there's an opportunity for me to learn, I'm not going to miss it. Moving towards advocacy is when you can actually point to something that you're doing. Whatever influence you have in your world, in your professional world, in your personal world, how are you actually using that influence to affect change? That defines advocacy is, is action. So what kind of actions do you think people can take? How can we be strong advocates for our communities of color? One of the things that I'm very cognizant of, again, being like a first-generation college graduate, is that people in academia, we have some standing within our community. Professors, doctors, we do have some standing just inherent to our positions. And so we can use that, that privilege to show up. That's really kind of the first thing. You know, show up, um, use your body, be there when there are actions in your community, but also within our professional sphere. Is we can affect a lot of change if we can change the face of medicine and science. And so what are we doing within our professional sphere? And there are no shortage of opportunities here at the university if we want to get involved in advocacy work. So for example, I have committed to being a facilitator training other faculty on implicit bias, which is kind of the 101. You know, it's like the first step to becoming an ally is to become aware of our own bias and how our bias impacts our actions. Looking for those things that pop up in our professional life, and they always do, making a commitment. And then also community. Get out there in the community and use your body. Yeah, you know, implicit bias has been a kind of a recurring theme on our podcast. So I love that you brought that up. It sort of infiltrates everything we do. We've talked about it a lot in, in terms of how it even affects the care that we provide in the emergency department. So yeah, it's extremely important. Talk to me a little bit about cultural humility. So in terms of being an advocate in a group that we may not personally identify with. So we're very fortunate to, again, have Dr. Jan Marie Garcia here, who published the paper on cultural humility. Cultural humility, I think, comes down to being genuinely curious about other people and really wanting to get to know what matters to them and what makes their heart beat and what brings them joy and not assuming that that we know those things going into that relationship. So really letting the other person tell us about what matters to them. Being a good listener is really key. So it starts with curiosity, but that curiosity really has to be genuine. Humility is sort of like um, what Dr. Kendi says about being an anti-racist. It's not something that you achieve and then you can check that box and move on. It is a, always a work in progress. So being an anti-racist is something that takes daily reflection and daily action and you never quite get there, but you keep trying. And it's the same thing with cultural humility. You never get to a point where you're an expert on anybody else's culture, but that perpetual curiosity propels you. I feel like there's sometimes sort of a fine line where I don't want to overstep or presume. I want to listen. I want to make sure that I am magnifying the voices of the people who are affected by this. At the same time, I don't want to unduly burden them with 
you know, requiring them to teach or explain. It's hard. We don't want to do any harm. It is really a delicate balance to strike. There's no way to avoid occasionally harming people. And if you do so, apologizing in a way that doesn't toss the responsibility back to them. So oftentimes we'll see the example of, I'm sorry I made you feel that way instead of, I'm just sorry, you know? But yeah, I think that you're expressing a sentiment that's very common in this journey where we want to amplify voices. But at the same time, what you're talking about is what they call the minority tax when For example, minority faculty are called upon again and again and again to do certain work. And oftentimes that work is not well compensated. It doesn't necessarily lead to merits and promotions. Um, And that uh, a similar term in the general population is emotional labor. When we're calling upon people of color to carry our emotional burden for us because this is a difficult journey for us. And so we need to be self-aware and we need to just apologize, not a conditional apology, a real apology when we, when we cross those boundaries. How do you recommend we have some of these conversations with our colleagues or family or friends who have different opinions about today's racial injustices? That's probably the thing that I struggle with the most. And it's, it's one of the most important things because if we're preaching to the choir, then we're not really accomplishing that much. It's when we can actually move somebody away from their lack of awareness and move them towards becoming aware. That's when we've accomplished something. And those can often be the most painful conversations to have. And at least, you know, one of the things I know about myself is I tend to avoid them. Because I get really frustrated and I just don't want to do it. But as you point out, it's really important work. So how do we do it? For me, really what had to happen was a chipping away at my lack of awareness over time. And then all of a sudden, it's almost like that critical last like fracture happens and it all just, you know, falls into dust and you don't look back because you can't. And so it's a chipping away. It's like recognizing when somebody is becoming defensive to the point that it's no longer a productive conversation, taking a step back, but then returning to that conversation at a time when they're a bit more receptive. And it's an art. And I have by no means perfected it. It reminds me going way back to my undergrad psychology classes and discussing some of the principles of social influence. And I remember that one of the most important things to actually getting somebody else to change an opinion is starting by finding some common ground and trying to understand where they're coming from. And that doesn't mean that you have to agree with it or that you're not going to be frustrated by it, but trying not to come out swinging, trying to recognize where they are coming from and maybe start there. And that may help to move forward in a productive way. It's so hard. There there are some books, you know, Hillbilly Elegy, for example, you know, to kind of help us understand, you know, where's the fear coming from? Because we're, we have a country that's changing very rapidly. And there are a lot of people who are afraid of that change. And where does that fear come from? So reading things like that, I think, has been helpful. 
Can you give us some concrete examples of things that people are doing maybe here at UC Davis or elsewhere to advocate for communities of color? We have our White Coats for Black Lives chapter here. So it's a national organization with chapters. And we have our UC Davis uh, chapter here. And actually, um, one of the things that they've just accomplished is the Racial Justice Report Card. As you might know, I'm the chair of our curriculum committee. And the White Coats for Black Lives chapter has done this really difficult, laborious work, uh, and they're going to bring it to CEP so that we can collaborate on affecting change in the curriculum. One of their recommendations is that we have anti-racism training for everybody, students, faculty, staff, really everybody on campus should have this training. I would be remiss if I didn't mention the bus trip, though. So that was um, with Dr. Dan Marie Garcia and her team. She has an absolutely wonderful team. And they actually just won one of the Dean's Excellence Awards. And so it's a two-day trip through the Central Valley. And it's Dr. Jan, and she actually, she brings along a historian. It gives you just this really vibrant and unique experience of the Central Valley. And you leave appreciating the people of the Central Valley in a way that you might not have before. I would have to point to that as one of the most formative experiences in my journey, and I would recommend it to everybody. What advice do you have for motivating others to get engaged? I think it helped when I decided I was going to integrate it into my professional identity. I'm an educator. And once I understood that You know, if I didn't have knowledge in this area, it would impact my effectiveness as an educator. I made that commitment. I need to understand the things that my students understand about medicine and the socioeconomic determinants of health. I need, I really need to know, know that stuff. So I I decided I was going to integrate it into my professional identity. But even if I didn't have that, I think curiosity would drive me. So my advice would just be to just to remain curious What I hope is that my students will recognize that I want to do my best for them. And part of that is creating a learning climate where students, no matter their background, they feel safe with me. I want students to know that I'm genuinely interested in their success and I'm genuinely interested in understanding the context of their lives and what it took for them to get there. So I can't do that unless I invest myself in this and incorporate it into my professional identity. Any final thoughts, things that we haven't covered that you think are important? You know, oftentimes this this can provoke a lot of really painful feelings and can kind of make you question who you've been, (laughs) you know, wait, who am I? What have I, you know, what kind of harm have I done? It can be hard. It's a journey. I would say just stick with it. For those of us who are white and privileged, if we retreat from this battle, it's going to be so much more difficult for the people who are suffering. So if we think it's hard, we need to kind of just power through because it's not nearly as hard for us as it is for people who are suffering. I want to thank Dr. Sweeney for speaking with us today. And I hope this motivates you to become a stronger ally through advocacy and action in your own community. I am still very much a work in progress, and I welcome your comments and feedback. 
please connect with us on social media at Impulse Podcast or on our website, ucdavisem.com. Thank you to the UC Davis Department of Emergency Medicine for taking a strong stand against racism and for working to address structural inequities in our own institution. And thank you to Orlando Magana at OM Audio Productions for helping us to get the word out.